All right, let's welcome our guests. We're going to talk about Gelman Amnesia. James Corbett, award-winning investigative journalist. The Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com is where you can get his materials. Uh, um, James, welcome to the program. He's actually calling us or visiting us from Japan, which we really appreciate the effort. So it is roughly 8 a.m. Japan time. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for having me. So first tell me, before we get into the specific topic, how did you get into this role of independent journalist? And did you ever imagine that that function would have such tremendous value in a world where people cannot find reliable sources on anything? Uh, to answer the question succinctly, no, I never in my mind, wildest <laughs> imagination um, thought that I would ever end up here doing this, talking to you on a platform like this. It's so bizarre to me. Um, but I guess we're all a product of the age that we grow up in, and I'm no exception of that. So my story really starts around 2006, where I was a I was an English major. I uh, got my bachelor's degree in English, and then I jetted off to uh, Ireland for a year to get my master's degree in Anglo-Irish literature. What do you do with a degree like that? Well, I always said, I'm going to frame it, because I couldn't think of anything better to do with it. Um, other than that, what what are you going to do? Are you going to be a journalist or a teacher? Because could, that was generally you could, what you could read. Uh, you could be. read uh, Sir Gawain. So you could read Sir Gawain <laughs> in the Green Knight and Beowulf in the Gaelic tongue, which I, which I have tremendous <laughs> tremendous yeah, demand for. Actually, I never quite got into that. Um, I was more of a Joycean <laughs> myself. But uh, at any rate, uh, um, I, yeah. So I ended up in Japan, just basically killing a year, seeing another part of the world, and earning enough money to pay off my student loan debt and. Lo and behold, I stumbled down the internet rabbit hole, which was um, coming around at that time, specifically these incredible new platforms like YouTube. You remember 2006 mm -hmm. time person of the year? You and me and everyone else. Mm -hmm. You are the person of the year because of YouTube. And oh, wow, this new this new media platform is coming along and it's going to completely upend the world. And I, I kind of scoffed. I, I rolled my eyes a little bit, but actually I started down the internet rabbit hole myself, finding all sorts of information that, hey, I never learned that in my history books, but I can go to the mm. National Security Archives and I can actually look at the actual document of Operation Northwoods. Mm. What? The U.S. government was the Joint Chiefs of Staff signed off on a plan to commit terror attacks in the United States, potentially killing Americans in order to justify war on Cuba? That's crazy conspiracy hog. Oh, there's the actual document from Lyman Lemnitzer himself addressed to Robert McNamara, and I can go read it for myself. So in that experience, I suddenly found everything was topsy-turvy, up was down, and what, what is going on? And just it being 2006 at that time, I thought, well, I got to do something. So I thought, okay, it's the internet age. I'm going to start a website. And a website became a podcast, and podcasts became videos, and videos became articles, and articles became interviews, and suddenly I'm a media personality of sorts at any rate i've been doing this what 16 17 years now and uh yeah i never ever would have imagined I'd we have here. a lot of you have a lot of fans we're, we, we were getting a lot of traction on social media with people talking about the quality of the work you do which i, I think is a that's a that's a great testimony to what you're doing so i, I my next question is something i've been trying to understand i mean you it's easy descriptively to understand what is happening but I, I sort of need some sort of, I'm not emotionally satisfied with these descriptive um, historical 
observations about what happened to journalism. What happened to journalists? Do do they not? Are they deluded? Do they not understand what's happening to them? Are do they are they so uh, overcome with a new calling that they abandon all the previous? Or there's is there a consensus of ethics that is something anathema to anything I understood about journalism? What what happened? There's a lot of ways you can approach that question, one of which is to just to look at the the professionalization of journalism, by which I mean the uh, the the rise of journalism schools and postgraduate programs and what have you as a way of training sort of upper, uh, if not upper class, at least certainly well-to-do um, uh, young people are going through these sort of journalism graduate schools and programs and what have you in order to become journalists now, which was not a thing, say, half a century, a century ago, when it tended to be more of a working class profession with working class sensibilities, I think. And the closer you mm-hmm, get to mm-hmm. establishment... Um, uh, regime politics, the more you're going to play along with them and play into them and not want to rock the boat fundamentally. So the fundamental idea of journalism as truth to power, I think, has been subverted simply by the the, the mollification of the journalist class, essentially, and uh, picking mm-hmm. uh, uh, people from um, higher economic strata, I think, in order to do this this job in, in and of itself. But that that actually speaks to the bigger question of the big, broad sweep of history and the technologies that enable journalism and the types of mm-hmm. social relations that they bring about. If people really want to deep dive into that, I did a, a documentary a couple of years ago called The Media Matrix, where I looked at the development of mass media from the time of Gutenberg up until the present and into the future with the metaverse and what have you. And I think we have to understand the media paradigm as people think of it today, although it is definitely shifting, but we still tend to think of it from that dinosaur media paradigm of the 20th century, which came about specifically because you had all of these incredibly capital-intensive technologies for getting information out. Printing presses became well beyond the means of the average person. You had to be uh, either a, a media baron who inherited millions and billions from your, your parents, like a, a Hearst or who have you, um, or you had to be a, a conglomerate. And then it, once you had radio stations and then television stations and satellite networks, there's no way an individual could possibly start up their own mom and pop media outlet. So it became this industry and the industrialization of the media itself obviously reflects on the types of journalism that would be done within that system. And I think speaks to that professionalization of the journalist class. So there's a lot of reasons that I think we've seen this change go on, but fundamentally what has happened in the last 20 years has been truly a revolution. And I think a revolution on the scale of the Gutenberg revolution, which utterly changed the course of human history. We are living through that right Mm. now and not enough people really appreciate that. Wow. Uh, yeah, I've always, I've been saying for quite some time, I, I think about the film industry and it, I, th- I think of it just as a technology that came around and several people learned to master the technology and then giant businesses were framed around it. And I, you know, it would cry, it required an entire movie studio to do what I'm holding in my hand. I have an iPhone in my hand and you, I, I have the power to be complete movie studio in my hand. Uh, and that, that has got to make a difference. And so that, and I, I wrote a book called The Mirror Effect, and one of the things we chronicled in that book was some of the dismantling of the, edit, 
editorial is not even the right word anymore, of the news delivery, I guess we'd say, or, or acquisition and delivery throughout the world that these these television stations and newspapers had had offices all over the place. And as it became more cheap to just report celebrity news, uh, they started just reporting celebrity news. And and they got better ratings. They got, oh, there's the book. They got better ratings. They got uh, more traction. And uh, that was the end of uh, sort of on-the-spot real news. But, you know, to be fair, I mean, there's so much going on with citizen journalists right now anyway that, that you can sort of get your, and who knows, you know, you get a lot of information without needing an office or a, a what do they call it? A, a, they call one this an, an outlet for a, a news agency in another city or another country. The Oh, shoot. What's the word I'm looking for, guys? Susan, uh, you got foreign con- correspondent. <laughs> uh, satellite? Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, but the... the no, the office. They, I can't even think of the name because they don't have them anymore. Bureau. What are you talking uh, about? What, what bureau. bureau? A bureau out in another in another city. Or Sorry, another. I was I was on Rumble. I got gotcha. you. So let's get into this the specific topic at hand, which is Gelman amnesia. Uh, I'll let you describe what it is. Uh, I I I not only let me just also uh, add my sort of frame on it a little bit, which is not only do you read about topics you understand and know and realize how poorly they are reported nothing is more astonishing than when somebody uh prints or tells some some reports something about you yourself because it's never close to reality so tell everyone about gelman amnesia all right, so this term comes from Michael Crichton. Yes, Jurassic Park, ER, Michael Crichton, um, who was delivering a speech back in 2002 in California at a leadership forum. And he coined this term, and he explained it as saying, okay, look, it works like this. You open the newspaper to an article about a subject you know well, and uh, it could be about, if you're a physicist, it's about physics. In Michael Crichton's case, it's about show business. You read the article, and you see the journalist has absolutely no understanding of either the facts or the issues. Often the article is so wrong, it actually presents the story backwards, reversing cause and effect. I call these the wet streets cause rain stories, papers full of them. In any <laughs> case, you read with yeah. exasperation or amusement the multiple errors in a story, and then you turn the page to national or international affairs and re- read with renewed interest as if the rest of the newspaper was somehow more accurate about far-off Palestine than it was about the story you just read. You turn the page yeah. and you forget what you know. That is the Gelman uh, amnesia effect as defined by Michael Crichton. And as you say, I think we can all understand that to some extent. Now, you being a media personality, me being a sort of media personality, we have had people write stories about us and I certainly don't recognize the person that these stories are written about. That's that's not right. me. That's totally, yeah. <laughs> you've got everything wrong. That's um, right. But for the average person out there, I think everyone has experienced this. What it, Whatever it is that you're into, it, whether you're in a particular profession or an industry, or whether you're just a really big fan of something and you know more about it than the average person, when you read about read some string reporter who just got assigned this as some sort of, you know, okay, the editor's giving him this project and he'll write his thousand words and whatever, move on to the next thing. They're not going to get things accurate, uh, as accurately as you would be able to with all of your knowledge. And you see that, you understand that. And you can understand that if you're being empathetic to that journalist at that point. Because, yeah, I mean, it's just some string reporter. You just got to assign this. Uh, he's not He's not an expert in this. But 
exactly as Crichton points out, we forget when we're reading about something we don't know about, we assume that the person writing about it is an expert in it. <laughs> that is a bad assumption because, uh, well, anytime you look into it, it turns out not to be the case, right? It, well, in terms of being empathic about it, they have become evangelical and aggressive. So if you question what they're saying, they will attack and try to destroy. And that is what is disgusting in the present moment. That is absolutely yeah. unacceptable. It needs to be stopped with aggressive, firm hand somehow. And uh, th this this can't go on. It just cannot go on. Uh, that's so that's exactly the part right. that, that I, it's one thing. Yeah. It's one thing for this to be about Star Wars or something. You're a big Star Wars fan, and someone writes yeah. some article, and oh, they got it all right. wrong. Okay, that's one thing. But when we're talking about true world-changing, life-changing, incredibly important subjects that go to the heart of who we are as a society and what is happening in the world. And then we get gaslit by the same people who are telling us outright demonstrable lies that, no, you're crazy, yes. and you're weird, and you can't, uh, why do you believe these things? That that truly is galling. And I, I have to admit, my empathy does run out at a certain point when, when suddenly I, I'm being demonized for knowing more than the person who's writing about whatever subject they're writing about. I, I've stepped through kind of an interesting relationship with the press and media, and, and I'm wondering if it's, if it's being echoed in other, other folks. So I, I slowly, I canceled the LA Times when they became like, absurd and wrote some terrible and lies about myself. So I was like, okay, that's done. Uh, I always loved reading the New York Times every morning. And then I saw them start to go south and I reluctantly had to stop New York Times. Then I, I literally stopped watching the news because it was, it was so full of uh, inaccuracies and excesses. So, so I've gone from a, a sort of avid consumer to somebody who used news or at least journalism as a as a thought mechanism to try to re understand things and think about things and i've in a stepwise fashion abandoned all of it i i the, now essentially everything comes from you social media independent sources it, it's just you cannot trust what is out there even and it's creating parallel economies because people are tired of being sold goods by companies that seem to hate them or disdain them. How do we understand this in the context of this historical sweep that you've been talking about, this being the Gutenberg Bible moment? Are we going to come up with solutions? Is this going to result in social discord as it did with the Gutenberg Bible? How, how are we going to do yeah. it? I mean, that's really the question, isn't it? For people who don't really understand the significance of Gutenberg, I mean, there's, uh, uh, we still really can't appreciate just how fundamentally that changed the course of human history and how much changed as a result of it. Uh, there's, I mean, the Reformation probably would not have been possible without the uh, the printing press and right. then uh, the, sure. all of the political sure. upheaval that came as a result of that. And so what we saw over the course of the pre preceding centuries was various attempts by various kings and tyrants and what have you to try to crack down on the printing press, because obviously this is a huge upheaval, and upheaval is not good. If you're the, the tyrant or the dictator or the king, you want things to be at the status quo. So this technology is changing things. We have to clamp down on it. So that was what we saw, the ham-handed attempts to try to essentially censor the press. 
um, by fiat, um, that the kings, you, for example, in, in England, um, you, you had various laws that came in in the 17th century that you had to be licensed to run a printing press, etc., etc. So there were various ways that they tried to clamp down on it, but that didn't quite work. And obviously, I think, for example, in the American Revolution, um, it was the pamphleteers who truly changed the course of the American Revolution and, and got people to understand that they were going through a revolutionary moment. No, this isn't some civil war within the British Empire. We are in a revolution. And it was Tom as pain and common sense completely, uh, utterly changed the American mindset. Um, and who just some some guy with just access to a printing press. So you can put the the cork on the bottle, but it's going to come off again. Um, but I think the 20th century, the consolidation of the the journalism enterprise into this industry, this multi billion dollar industry by these mega corporate institutions, that was an even more effective way, essentially, of not not controlling the press in the sense that you need a license in order to print something, but simply making it out of the reach of the average person. So you have these editorial gatekeepers. And what we have seen over the past 20 years is that cork coming off because suddenly average people, people like me sitting in my room in Japan can suddenly start this podcast that's being heard by ultimately millions of people around the world. What on earth is going on? And uh, that is the <laughs> revolutionary side of this because what we saw 500 plus years ago with Gutenberg and the complete revolutionary change in society that took place, we are starting to see what that could look like in the current era. That's not necessarily always an unfettered good for everyone all the time and yay, happiness and Shangri-La, but at any rate, it does get us closer to actual communication and actual spreading of knowledge and ideas and actual discussion, which is anathema to the status quo. So we're starting to see the same types of things the kings of old did to try to clamp down on the printing press. We're starting to see the, the establishment rallying around clamping down on the internet. And so now we get, no, things aren't true or false. Now we have misinformation and disinformation and malinformation. And what is malinformation? God. It is true information that is upsetting to the status quo, essentially, that, that makes the, uh, the establishment unhappy. And you have the actual Department of Homeland Security in the United States warming, warning about malinformation as terrorism. This is, this is serious stuff. And I, I think the average person out there probably isn't taking it nearly as seriously as the people in positions of power are right now. And that's why we're hearing so much about this misinformation, disinformation. We have to crack down because they understand just how revolutionary a moment this can be. And you point to the, the fundamental question of trust. Yes. No doubt. I, I, I have seen it certainly in the work that I do, and even amongst the sort of the average general um, Joe out there in the public, I, I, I think the, the, the tr loss of trust in the media is palpable. Most people now mm. tend to distrust a lot of the establishment media outlets that they used to turn to. But I would hope that we don't simply fall into some sort of new trap of, okay, well, now who now who do I blindly put my trust in? I think the real point of the Gelman amnesia effect is that we have to consciously remember that, oh yeah, whoever's writing this may not be an expert in what they're writing. Maybe they are an expert. Maybe they're not. I have to verify that information that I choose to take on board. And I think that uh, yes. it's uncomfortable because that puts the onus back on us. Oh my God, it's work. I have to actually look things up. I have to actually but you know what? Um, I, sort I, things out for myself. I, but if we don't get I, ourselves in that mindset, we will never really break through the paradigm that's been established over the past century.
So I have three kind of interesting reactions to that. What you just said. One is that it kind of reminds me of how patients behave, should behave properly in the setting of navigating the medical system. They need to be informed. They need to be motivated. They need to be aware. And they need to have a trusted guide, an ombudsman. That should be their primary caretaker, or it can be a lot of different things. But you need you need a person that you can trust, and not that you follow them blindly, but that you help them. They help you make sense of the buzzing, blooming mess that's out there. Number two, it's interesting to me that uh, COVID was an example of the status quo, as you say, the people in power, the the elite, behaving like the kings of yore, uh, really. Uh, clamping down and destroying people, bringing out the guillotines, everything. The old, the playbook is all there. It just has a more modern sort of um, application or, or, you know, the way it's just so, I mean, really that that's very helpful to me actually to think about it that way. Cause it's the same old thing. And uh, I would argue back then you had an obligation not to cave to that. You also had an obligation not to, I would say, uh, if history is any teacher, to feed into the guillotines. Don't 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 bring out the guillotines because everybody goes up eventually. It doesn't doesn't sort anything out, as we see now. Uh, we have guillotines now related to plagiarism. We had guillotines related to having an opinion about COVID. As guillotines about everything, and it's and it's still going. It's going to go for a while. And then finally, uh, we have to remember that not only was the Lutheran you know, Martin Luther able to uh, play out his revolution because of the printing press, one of the fundamental, and people aren't aware of this particular fact, that one of the fundamental issues that resulted in the religious wars was that was what was fundamental to Martin Luther and Protestantism was that you should read your own Bible. And they were being printed at a very high rate so you could get access to a Bible. That's thus the Gutenberg Bible is such a sentinel phenomenon in, in, the, in this story. While the Catholics believe you needed the priest to interpret everything for you and the Bible is not the, not the domain of an average person. They should stay away from it. It's dangerous. Uh, am, I, am I stating any, does all that sort of, is that all that correct? I guess I'm asking. Yeah. It, there, there's a lot to get into there, but uh, one thing that I will point out yeah. is that the uh, the 95 theses that uh, Martin Luther famously <laughs> nailed to the church door that was uh, addressed to the Archbishop of Mainz, which is the city that Gutenberg was born in. So there's there's a lot of historical parallels going on in that story. But you're uh, you're exactly right. Uh, there has been some back and forth about well, how important was the printing press to what Luther was doing? But Luther himself said that uh, the uh, the printing press was the 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 father of the Reformation or whatever way he actually put it. Um, certainly so. the idea so. of an average priest in the middle of nowhere, like who's this guy, suddenly being able to have a st start and ignite this conversation that ultimately upends an, an institution that's been around for more than a millennia and has such power, that that truly is a revolutionary moment. And I think we can all understand mm. what that looks like. And as you say, what we're experiencing now 
is essentially the same, if not the same thing, it's a very markedly similar thing that is playing out in the modern application in the modern context. So what are the kind of the same establishment institutions that are preparing to fall in the way that say the, the, the Holy Roman Empire, the, whole, the Roman Catholic Church, how, uh, what is, the, what is the, the parallel going on today? Well, we can see this in the reflection, for example, something that would have been absolutely laughed at out of the room. You're absolutely insane, crazy for even bringing it up a few years ago that now people go, well, yes, of course that exists. Look at something like the World Economic Forum and their great reset. Yes, we're going to use this crisis of the pandemic as an opportunity a crisis if you will, to reset the earth and all public relations. And we're going to, we're, we're going to start these new institutions and establishments and all of this. I, I think what we're seeing is a, a combination of panic on the side of the people in the status quo who understand that the, uh, the, the populist movement, uh, political movement at any rate of the last several years is a true threat to their, their power and people's trust in those institutions, but also Unfortunately, along with that crisis moment comes the possibility, I think, for people who have an agenda to consolidate control and power to move that agenda forward. And everything, everything depends on the way that we react to this and the types of things that we do to either push this forward into that revolutionary phase or to simply acquiesce and, oh, oh, well, I guess I guess we'll just have to fall back in line and and make sure that we're doing what we're told. And, oh, I, I don't want to say any misinformation, so I better not say anything at all. The more that we shut up and basically allow these tyrants to do what they're going to do, well, then it's game over. Then they win. Uh, that's I, I I was hoping to get your opinion. I think I got it, and so uh, and I have a few more minutes with you before I wrap things up. What what is preoccupying you these days? What what are you concerned about? I am concerned about a lot of things that people can find on CorporateReport.com, but one that in particular for this year that I think is incredibly important and is not receiving enough attention is the World Health Organization's pandemic accord agreement whatever they're calling it this week they keep changing the name so that people can't find out what it means and what it is but essentially for people who don't know there's a couple of processes going on in the world health organization right now one is to reform the international health regulations to to put amendments forward on that another is to create a pandemic agreement that would essentially allow the world health organization director general to declare a public health emergency over pretty much anything he feels like at any time. And with that, to trigger a number of things that will essentially make the World Health Organization able to more effectively dictate what each and every individual member state's um, response to that emergency is. And we saw what happened in the past few years with regard to all of that. So I think that should be sending a shiver down the spine of everyone who's listening if they're paying attention. And that is coming to a head in May at the 75th World Health Assembly, 75th, 77th, whatever it is, um, the World Health Assembly in May in Geneva, they are going to try to push this through. And uh, this truly could be the the end of health sovereignty um, nationally, let alone individually. And I think people need to be paying attention to that. Oh, my gosh. We, we spoke to Michelle Bachman, who's trying to rattle the cage uh, at Congress and getting very little traction. And it is, it is it, an astonishing document that will give them fiat authority over all sovereign elected officials. That is, that is the, the more consolidated, the more centralized, the worse the outcome in health 
for the individual. It's just how healthcare works. It needs to be it needs to be distributed where a person is taking care of a person. That's why we have it that way. That's why it's been that way. You put everything in centralized authority, untold harm gets done. And uh, did we not just see that? Well, listen, I appreciate you spending some time with me. I hope you'll give me a chance to catch you again. I know it's it's hard in Japan, but uh, as things come up, I'd love to hear your thoughts about these things. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for the time. CorbettReport.com. Check them out there. Uh, so we're going to have Jordan Schachtel in here in just a second. Uh, he's going to be talking about the House testimony today. Uh, there he is. It's There it is on the screen right now. Uh, let's just get uh, to uh, a couple of minutes uh, from those that support the show so we can do this thing, and then we'll be back with Jordan. <laughs> 